Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Hello, everybody. This is Shane Claiborne, and I am so glad that you're joining uh, the show, listening in. It is a wild time to be alive. It feels like uh, 2023. Um, we've had so many things happen here in the United States. We've had back-to-back mass shootings. I mean, almost every day we're looking at you know horrible news stories. Uh, We've had six executions uh, in the United States, and we're only, um, you know, a couple months into the new year. Um, Lord, have mercy. Our, in the pandemic, our our gun violence hit a record high. We, we ended up, uh, over the last few years, gun deaths uh, became the number one cause of death of American children. So more than car accidents or cancer or anything else. Uh, and, you know, we're looking at the world right now. There's a lot of suffering out there. There's a lot of, um, we've got the Ukraine's heavy on our hearts, but also the violence that we, we um sometimes it doesn't even make the headlines in places like Israel and Palestine and um, uh, other regions that are in conflict. So what does it look like to follow the Prince of Peace? That's what we're going to talk about a a little bit today. And, you know, this season of Lent, um, as many of us call it, a lot of folks, you know, don't necessarily know what Lent is, but it's uh, um, the season before Easter. And for hundreds of years, Christians have kind of contemplated what Jesus did um, on the cross and through the resurrection and spent some time with uh, thinking through Jesus's life. Um, and so this is a good time. We we have some traditions in our family. We uh, A lot of folks fast during Lent, you know, and um, give up different things. I, I know our priest uh, said this really well. Uh, Michael Doyle, who passed away last year, he, he was our Irish Catholic priest in Camden. And he said, um, he said, what's the difference between a flute and a stick in the mud? And he said, uh, a stick in the mud is still full of itself, but a flute has been emptied of itself so that it can make beautiful music in the world. And so Lent's a way that we kind of empty ourselves. We make space for God and make space to for our lives to, to make music in the world. Uh, so we, we turn off our lights and electricity a bit in Lent and uh, have candles and oil lamps that we use. And it's just kind of a way of centering, grounding ourselves. Uh, some folks give up chocolate or alcohol or <laughs> even fast from food. Uh, but I'm excited to have a friend on this show that we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Lent, but we're also going to talk about his work reflecting on uh, what Jesus is all about. Uh, so Jason Porterfield is my guest today. He's written a book called Fight Like Jesus, and we're going to talk about that. So Jason, good to have you, bro. Thanks for taking some time to join me. Yeah, thanks, Shane. It's great to be here with you today. 
And before we get to your book, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you spent some time uh, over here in Camden, where I mentioned Michael Doyle and the Camden community. You also um, have done some beautiful missional work in different parts of the world, I think, with with uh, a group called Servants. So tell us a little bit of the journey uh, that you've had before we dive into your new book or your, your book around uh, Fight Like Jesus. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in a military family, so we kind of lived all over the place, but then eventually settled in Pennsylvania. Uh, went to a Southern Baptist church there that taught me really to love Jesus, but it was also a very, very patriotic church. In fact, it even had the name country in the name of the church, you know. And uh, But in college, I went to Messiah College, which is now Messiah University, which is a historically Anabaptist school. And it was the first time I began to grapple with Jesus's peace teaching and issues of justice. And, and it was during that time I led a spring break missions trip with uh, nine other students to Camden where we spent a week with uh, the community there. And uh, uh, it was just a very formative time. You know, I left that week feeling like uh, uh, to kind of put a twist on Mother Teresa's famous saying, you know, when people would ask to volunteer, you know, the Camden, New Jersey's of the world are everywhere. If you only have eyes to see, find your Camden. And and so a few years after graduating, I joined Servants, which is an international network of Christian communities that all feel called to live among the urban poor. Uh, and uh, historically, that's been in the slums of Asia, but they were starting a new community in Canada's poorest urban neighborhood. It's a, a section of Vancouver called the downtown east side. So January 1st, 2007, you know, literally the start of a new year and a new chapter for my life, I, I moved and joined that missional community in, in the downtown east side. Sweet. And and the Servants is still going, right? Can folks uh, still check out that work that's happening in different parts of the world? They can, yeah. It, was, it started out in New Zealand and uh, the website servantsasia.org. Um, and so there's still, you know, a number of teams or communities uh, in Southeast Asia primarily. Cool. Well, and, you know, my friend Chris Haw, who was one of the founders of that Camden community, he and I wrote Jesus for President, and we were wrestling with some of the the same themes that you write about, uh, namely, um, Jesus's life is sort of a parody uh, of political power, um, a Rudy, a kind of a repudiation of the messianic expectation that many people had. I mean, King's killed uh kings didn't die and so this was different mm-hmm. and I, I i'm really excited to talk to you about your book uh fight like jesus so tell us about you know kind of what what uh how this book came to be and 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 how it you know speaks in a unique way um to to what jesus is all about yeah so the book came out uh, of a time of basically hitting rock bottom you know being burnt out um I moved to the downtown east side thinking of myself as a peacemaker. In other words, I felt called to contend for the flourishing of this very beautiful yet also broken neighborhood. Uh, a lot of, of drug addiction, number of neighbors experiencing homelessness uh, on any given night, 900 women trapped in prostitution. Uh, but one thing I didn't know before I arrived was, you know, I was blindsided just three weeks after my arrival. The jury trial began for the man we'd all soon learn was Canada's deadliest serial killer, Robert Pickton. And so for over a decade, he would drive into the downtown east side, pick up uh, a woman engaged in sex work, take her back to his farm and kill her. And so by the time he finally was arrested, he had butchered and fed to his pigs the bodies of 49 women from my neighborhood. And so, you know, it just the the drugs were so powerful, the poverty is so pervasive, and and the the despair, I mean, it just left my soul gasping for air. You know, we were all just grieving in this neighborhood. 
So one day I, I dragged myself to church and plopped down in the pew and it turned out to be Palm Sunday. And so like most churches, it was a joyous occasion. You know, the classic scene where the kids parade through the sanctuary there, everyone chants Hosanna. Um, all the songs are in a major key now, you know, and, and when the pastor uh, got up and began to deliver his feel good message, I, I just wasn't in any mood to celebrate, you know, um, and I remember praying to God in my seat, just saying, God, I'm, I'm a failure of a peacemaker. Would you teach me how to make peace? And so I decided to read the Gospels accounts of Palm Sunday. And that's when I noticed for the first time ever in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that while the crowds were shouting cheers as Jesus made his not so triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that Jesus was actually shedding tears. And when he could hold back his grief no more, he cries out for everyone to hear, if only you knew on this of all days, the things that make for peace. And Shane, it was one of those rare times where it felt like the answer to my prayer came so fast after I prayed it, right? You know, it's taken years to unpack the implications of, of noticing that lament. But but as I sat in that pew all those years ago, I I, I sensed that God was, was saying, you know, uh, if you want to learn how I make peace and study the greatest peacemakers, greatest week. Um, and, and so that's, that's what I've come to, to love about Holy Week. You know, um, most books on peacemaking tend to focus on the Sermon on the Mount. And for good reason, it's got the core yeah. of Jesus's peace teaching, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, do not violently resist an evil person. My problem in the downtown East side was, you know, I could quote that teaching. I didn't know how to apply it. And the beautiful thing about Holy Week is it's the main stage on which we get to see Jesus put all of his previous peace teaching into action. And, you know, a third of the yeah. Gospels focus on his final week. Um, and so uh, the book just goes day by day, extracting peacemaking lessons for us as it looks at how Jesus confronted injustice, called out oppressors, and and contended for peace. So it kind of hit you on Palm Sunday. And, uh, you know, I, I think Palm Sunday is one of those, some of us remember as a kid, the palm branches and everything, you know, the kickoff of the Easter week. Uh, but it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. And and um, the, the palm branches were a symbol of, uh, of uprising, right, of revolution. And um, they came from the a Maccabean revolt and uh, the Passover season that this this week kicks off of Holy Week was um, a, a really an anti-imperial Jewish festival. There was often violence. There were troops lining the streets, and um, uh, there were there were times where people were were really brutally killed. Um, and and I mean that so that's the kind of really important backdrop. And some have suggested, you know, that the Jesus may have not been really excited about the palm branches. It was kind of the fist in the air. You know, uh, I remember one historian said they they found a palm branch engraved on one of the imperial walls, kind of like um, first century graffiti or something. I guess <laughs> that's how you did it back then. You had to yeah. chisel it into the wall, but. Um, you know, so Jesus is a is is showing us a different kind of revolution, and talk a little bit more about the complexity of that, and you know how fighting like Jesus is fighting very differently from that messianic expectation that people had. Yeah, I'd love to. So, uh, what we call Holy Week was originally uh, Passover, right? The week long festival to celebrate the time God won their uh, His people's liberation from 
Egypt. And so, like you said, you know, the week had a track record of inciting all out insurrection, you know, people gathering together to remember the time God won their liberation and hoping he would do so once again. And uh, in 4 BC, some frustrated Jews stoned to death some Roman soldiers and uh, uh, Rome came in and canceled that year's Passover. And as a result, told their provincial rulers, you've got to bring reinforcements. So we know Pontius Pilate left his coastal town, Caesarea Maritima, and brought reinforcements. Um, historians think it tripled the number of soldiers in the city for Passover. And his uh, triumphal entry marched in from the opposite side of Jerusalem, while Jesus and his motley crew are coming in from the other side, right, at the start of Passover. And then the crowd's actions, you're right, um, you know, Hosanna means liberate us now, save us, we pray, deliver us, we plead. Um, they quote a psalm, Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they add some words not in the psalm, the king of Israel. They lay their coats on the ground, which is how you coronate a new king. It's what they did when Jehu was crowned king in Second Kings chapter 9. And then, like you said, they waved palm branches. And I always thought of palm branches like the, the ancient equivalent of those giant foam fingers you see at sporting events. You know, like I thought waving <laughs> them meant like, you're awesome, Jesus. But you're right. It was a politically loaded symbol that uh, goes back to the Maccabean revolt. So 200 years before this, the Seleucid Empire ruled over the Jewish people, and um, their king desecrated the temple, sprinkling pig's blood throughout it, and then ordered all the towns to offer sacrifices to his gods. Well, there was an old priest named um, Mattathias that refused, and he actually stabbed uh, the king's man to death uh, inspector to death, tore down the altar, fled to the hills, and soon after his health deteriorated. And so he gathered his five sons around him, and his dying words to his sons were, avenge the wrong done to your people, pay back the Gentiles in full. So his middle son, Judas, takes up that battle cry and leads a pretty successful rebellion that actually gains back Jerusalem. And as he makes his triumphal entry into the city and then cleanses the temple, the crowds wave palm branches. And when they thought yeah. they were gaining their independence, they started to mint their own coins and put that palm branch on the coin and it <clears throat> uh, excuse me, encircled it with the battle cry for the redemption of Zion. So even after Jesus in the Jewish-Roman wars that occurred decades after him, anytime the Jewish people thought they're getting their independence back, they started to mint coins again, and the palm branch remained the symbol of their hopes for liberation. So in other words, waving yeah, them was saying, Jesus, we think you're our liberator. We think you're coming like uh, Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus, uh, it was a nickname that meant the hammer because he was so fierce in battle. So we think you're the hammer uh, coming to bring the hammer down on the Romans. Yeah. So uh, just to uh, for folks that are tuning in, uh, you've been listening to Jason Porterfield. He's uh, uh, done done some really interesting stuff and and written this great book, uh, Fight Like Jesus. Um, it's a good book to read anytime, but especially during Lent or Holy Week, because uh, it's unpacking kind of the subversive nature of what Jesus did. Um, and, and and particularly, I think his his um, uh, approach to to power to show us what God's like, um, even in the power struggles of this world. So um, as we get back into it, Jason, so the 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 um, there are folks that 
still try to remake God in their own image. (laughs) We've got uh, uh, bumper stickers of Jesus with an AR-15 saying, if he had only had one of those, this story might have ended differently. So people still want um, that kind of violent uh, God comes and cleans house sort of thing. Um, and, and the disciples wanted that. Some of them wanted to call down fire from heaven, right? There, there was yeah. this sort of propensity towards violence that Jesus is constantly um, subverting and trying to teach them another way. But there are some that like, you know, look at Holy Week and um, still try to twist things, you know, saying that Jesus used violence uh, when he made a whip and, and, uh, you know, cleared the temple out, um, Mm -hmm. that that Jesus told people, you know, uh, go get your, your swords ready. Um, that that it was as if he he had some kind of violent tendencies in him. Um, I've done a lot of work to try to, uh, uh, you know, to (laughs) unpack those (laughs) verses in books that I've written, but I wonder how you interact with some of those, uh, you know, arguments that Jesus did kind of use violence or, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, temple cleansing is Monday of Holy Week. And and then Thursday uh, during the Last Supper, right? He says, if you if you don't have a sword, uh, get one. And they say, we have two. And he says, okay, enough. You know. Um, and so I, I look at both of those passages. With the temple cleansing on Monday, I try to not just neutralize what seems to be a problem text, but show how it actually advances our understanding of peacemaking. So at first it says that Jesus went into the temple the night before, so after the triumphal entry, uh, and it says he assessed the situation. He looked around, something bothered him, and then he went back to Bethany for the night. He had all night to devise a plan, you know? Um, And so when he goes back the next day, it actually says that uh, once he was in the temple, he constructed a whip, uh, something like a whip, it actually says in the Greek, uh, out of a material that's like wicker, it explicitly states the material. It was most likely the the bedding used for the animals that were being sold there is the prevailing theory. Um, but the Greek uh, is actually quite clear. It says, and making a whip out of cords, he drove out of the temple all, and then it has this little phrase, to the sheep, kai the cattle. And it's used 90 times in the New Testament. And to have it say that Jesus whipped people, you'd have to translate it in a way it's never translated the other 90 times. Um, and so in the book, I, I go to show that, you know, this lesson it doesn't show Jesus as violent. Rather, it shows that he's not passive. When when there was injustice going on, he refused to sit idly by and do nothing. Um, so he he drives out the animals, uh, the animal sellers, the money changers go out, and then we always always look that he actually invites the the lame and the blind in, and he heals them. And children come in. Both groups were prohibited from coming in the temple, you know. Um, so it's actually this beautiful act of, of peace. And with the swords, you know. Um, some people, some pacifists try to say um, that they they weren't actually swords; they were, you know, cooking knives, short little daggers. But actually, it says that the mobs that go out to the garden to arrest Jesus are armed with the same swords. But it actually says very clearly why Jesus uh, told his disciples to get swords. It says uh, for or because it is written that he will be numbered among the in the Greek anamos. It means those outside the law, outlaws, uh, the lawless, or as the New Living Translation says, he'll be counted among the rebels, <laughs> which is exactly what the mob thought when they come out to arrest Jesus. You know, they're they're armed because they think they will need to fight. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is. Um, 
you know, I always thought the disciples fled when the mob arrives in the garden, but that's not what the gospels tell us, actually. They actually stand their ground, you know, uh, and say, should we draw our swords and strike with our swords? And they don't wait for an answer because the answer seems obvious to them, of course. Um, and, and then Jesus has that line, you know, put your sword away for all who draw the sword will will die by the sword. And uh, Moyer Hubbard, a professor out of California, says, you know, this is not a the time is not right kind of pro- prohibition. This is a the time is never right kind of prohibition mm, yeah and you know the the early christians like tertullian said when jesus disarmed peter he disarmed every one of us uh, exactly. you know if ever there was a case for trying to use violence to protect the innocent uh, peter had the strongest case there was but you know after he i always thought the go get your sword was kind of airing the dirty laundry you know it's, it's <laughs> like when we tell people bring your guns to the altar so we can chop them up um yeah. you know? <laughs> So they were there, you know, they had them. And I think, I think Jesus is really trying to expose that there was still this underlying tendency towards violence. But then as soon as Peter tries to use a sword, uh, he makes it crystal clear that that's not the way this revolution is going to roll. And, and in fact, heals the man that, that Peter wounded, um, continues to speak love in the face of such horrific violence. And, um, uh, yeah, you know, I thought I think of the whip too. There's just not not a whole lot of ways to get sheep out of a temple, or you know, <laughs> yeah. um, they they don't exactly listen to you. You know, get out, guys. So you know, I yeah. think there's a reason that we have uh, farming uh, tools to try to herd the sheep. And you know, I, I also remember Jason that uh, one man that was very inspired by the flipping of the temples, and he was a part of of um, this kind of radicalized movement in the States, many of which took over the Capitol on January 6th. And, Mm. um, but I I remember as he was kind of stepping back from that and he said this, he said, I knew that I needed to flip over tables. I was just flipping over the wrong tables. Mm. So it does feel like there's something, there's, um, uh, something that Donald Trump and others have kind of tapped into of people's, um, uh, anger and disappointment with politicians and things like that. But uh, it's got to be directed in a Christ-like way that, um, you know, you, you're kind of pointing us to that we're fighting like Jesus is um, it's, it's a different kind of fight. And I think of Dr. King, you know, as he at one point had a gun and mm-hmm. he decided, you know, we're not going to win this thing using the same weapons as the people who, are opposing us. Um, and he got rid of his gun. And, you know, this is where he and Miss Coretta Scott King both said, we're going to choose love because hate mm-hmm. is too big a burden to bear. Um, so as you continue to look at that, I mean, are there some other points in the book that you, we just got a few minutes left, but I mean, there's so much that you unpack and I hope people will check out your book, Fight Like Jesus. But as we, we think about Holy Week, what are some other takeaways that you, you um, want to share today? Yeah, I think one of the big ones is, you know, so when Jesus prohibits the swords in the garden, that's when the disciples all flee, when he says violence is not allowed, right? And then on Friday, I think the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, that's the decision we all Mm. have to make. Yeah, say a little bit more about that. Yeah, so Barabbas is like the original John Wayne, you know, and I think of that book, Jesus and John Wayne, right? Um, Yeah. uh, Barabbas, his name means, so Bar Abba, son of the father, and Matthew tells us his first name is Jesus. So here's this two competing messiahs, right, to choose from. And and it tells us that Barabbas was in jail because he murdered someone in a past insurrection attempt. So here's a failed insurrectionist 
but at least he's proven his willingness to fight on our behalf, to go back to Judas Maccabeus, to bring a hammer down upon our enemies. And then there's Jesus the Nazarene who refuses to kill, but is willing to be killed. And I think that's the choice we all have to make. Uh, will we pick up the hammer and crucify Jesus, or will we choose the way of the lamb? You know, even mm. going back to Palm Sunday, Jesus entered on the day when everyone chose their lamb. It was lamb selection day, and he entered through the sheep gate, you know, saying, I'm not the hammer of God, I'm the lamb of, lamb of God. And that's what we each have to choose. Mm. Mm. And, you know, as we think about that, it, it it offers, there's so much to unpack that we, you know, we can't do it all justice in 30 minutes here. But I, I think even that point where Jesus is showing us in a violent world, um, how we are to live without, uh, you know, as the old thing says, in, in battling the dragon, don't become the dragon. You know, in battling yes. the beast, don't become the beast. Uh, don't let this world make us hate or make us violent. Uh, we're following the Prince of Peace. But, you know, sometimes that's that's a lonely place. And I, I you know, I think even one of the the beautiful parts of Holy Week is when Jesus, I mean, this is something we can contemplate the rest of our lives, you know, felt the absence of God I mean, this is God saying, why have you forsaken me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and so Jesus is feeling that kind of long loneliness um, and and so enters our humanity that can, you know, God can feel like God uh, has abandoned us. And, and um, you know, that it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. And then to, to show us, you know, uh, the spectacle of God's love in the face of the violence of our systems and world. Um, thanks for writing this book, man. And uh, how can folks, you know, get a hold of it or follow you on socials? If, uh, you know, yeah. So um, you know, the best places you can get the book anywhere online, and then my website, jasonporterfield.com. I actually also have a free resource there, right on the homepage. That's just titled "100 Early Christian Quotes on Not Killing." And it's just oh, a one-page introduction and then a hundred quotes uh, uh, with sources cited so people can read for, in further detail. Yeah. So we've been talking with Jason Porterfield. Thanks for listening in, everybody. And, and of course, you can see lots of other uh, interviews and articles uh, at redletterchristians.org. We, we also have the stages of Jesus's execution, often called the, the stations of the cross by many traditions of, of, of the church. Uh, that have been painted by men on death row, um, on Tennessee's death row. So these are guys that have been condemned to death that are reflecting on Jesus's death and resurrection. So check all that out at redletterchristians.org and uh, make sure you get Jason's book, Fight Like Jesus. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.